You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Daylight had come, and with it the guns of the enemy were sending their screaming shells over our heads. When we reached the toll gate, our column halted, and the men were directed to find shelter behind a stone house that stood just to the right of the road as we approached the town. In our mess of ten were Bob Lee, the general's son, and Bob McKim, a fine young fellow full of fun from the city of Baltimore. We were called the Three Bobs. Feeling a little of the sense of safety which the stone house afforded, Bob McKim slapped me on the shoulder and said, I will breakfast with you this morning at your home in Winchester. And I replied, I will dine with you when we get to Baltimore. Soon the call to fall in and mount caissons came to us, and we ran out from behind the stone house to where the screaming shells seemed to come closer and closer down the road, as if they were hunting for us and screaming in anger because they did not find us. All but I climbed quickly upon the caissons. I don't know why I did not do that also, unless it was because I thought we would move but a little before we should unlimber for action again. Here I made a mistake. The horses went off at once in a trot, and I had only time to catch hold of an iron seat guard on a caisson when the horses were lashed into a gallop. I hung on with both hands, swinging to and fro, and only now and then touching the ground to my feet. The men on the seat could not pull me up, and to let go would mean that the plunging horses behind and heavy pieces and caisson which they drew would crush me to death if I fell. But I did succeed in holding on, thanks perhaps to my light weight of about 115 pounds. I still had hold with both hands when the battery slowed up by the graveyard by the old mill wall, just this side of the Hollingworth house. When I let go, there was hardly a patch of skin on the palms of my hands and the inside of my fingers. We did not stop, but hurried along the road leading up the hill, while the terrible noise of firing guns and bursting shells just above us drowned even the sound of voices close by. As we mounted the hill, the shells seemed to spit in our faces as they threw all around us the ragged pieces which their explosions scattered left and right. The battery in the column following it moved forward like clockwork. We passed the dead and wounded of our battery, and there lay Bob McKim, dead, his fine and happy face stained with blood, and his forehead crushed in by a bullet or fragment of a shell. Private Robert T. Barton, Rockbridge Artillery I had dismounted to go down toward the wall, and was directing the officer in charge of the piece, where his fire could be directed with most effect, when I heard a cry. I turned and saw the 27th Indiana, which had just opened its fire, had broken and was running. I saw that the enemy were pouring up the hillside and round our right. I saw also that the 29th Pennsylvania had broken and was following the 27th Indiana. The enemy were coming on at a run, with yells, but not in any regular order. The officer commanding the piece said to me, "'What shall I do? I have got no support from my gun.' "'Blaze away, Adam,' said I. "'I shall lose my gun.' 
said he. Well, said I, you must do as you choose. I turned and found that our regiment was withdrawing. I could not see my horse anywhere, and so I followed on foot. As we passed off the hill, the enemy rose on its crest. Their cracking and whistling fire followed us closely. I recollected an unmailed letter in my pocket, and preferring to have it unread, rather than read by hostile eyes, I tore it up as we went down the hill. A few of our men would turn and fire up the hill, reloading as they went. I delayed a little to applaud their spunk. We passed down into the edge of town. As I came along, a young soldier of Company C was wounded in the leg. I gave him my arm, but finding that he was too much injured to go on, advised him to get into a house, and went on. The regiment was forming in line when I reached it. Before I had time to go to the left, where Colonel Andrews was, the regiment moved off again, and I followed. It now became a run. A fire began to assail us from the cross streets as well as from the rear. Just as I was near the edge of the town, one of our soldiers called out to me, Major, I'm shot. I turned to him and took him along a few steps, and then took him into a house. I told the people they must take care of him, and laid him down. I then turned to go out, but the butternut soldiery were all around the house, and I quietly sat down. A soldier soon came in and took me prisoner. I made friendly acquaintance with him. Major Wilder Dwight, 2nd Massachusetts, Gordon's Brigade Welcome to the 150th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. When we left off last time, it was the morning of Sunday, May 25th, 1862, and the stage was set for the First Battle of Winchester. One thing we wanted to mention before moving on is that part of the legend of the Valley Campaign is that so many supplies had been abandoned during the Nathaniel Banks' retreat to Winchester that the rebels dubbed him Commissary Banks. But bestowing this nickname on Banks may have said more about the poor state of Confederate logistics than it did about the number of Yankee wagons that were actually captured. A good number of wagons had indeed been lost, but not actually, so it would seem, as many as Confederate sources bragged. Banks' quartermaster later reported not more than 106 vehicles lost in what would eventually be the two-day retreat from Strasburg to Williamsport, Maryland. Nearly all were lost on Saturday, May 24th, and that agrees with the more reliable Confederate estimates of 100 wagons counted as abandoned on the Valley Pike that day. But nearly all the Federal Division and Brigade trains, and most of the depot trains from Strasburg, at least 500 wagons in all, were indeed brought off safely. So, as Tracy said, if the Confederates viewed the contents of the wagons they did capture with delight and considered it a generous contribution to their well-being from commissary banks, then that may be more of a testament to the perennially poor state of rebel logistics than to the actual number of Yankee wagons that were captured. Okay, so now we're going to shift gears a bit and turn our attention to Washington, D.C., to see how Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton 
reacted to Stonewall Jackson's surprise offensive. Remember that earlier on, the President had stripped McClellan of his duties as General-in-Chief, and since then, Lincoln and Stanton had taken on the task of managing Union strategy. On Saturday evening, Banks reported on his retreat to Winchester to Washington, explaining that after their victory at Front Royal, Jackson and Ewell had moved against him in overwhelming numbers, necessitating his withdrawal from Strasburg. After hearing from Banks, Stanton busied himself marshalling reinforcements for the Shenandoah Valley and gathering what information he could on the state of affairs there. Meanwhile, Lincoln mulled over the proper response to Stonewall's thrust down the valley. Lincoln had actually just returned from a conference in the field with Irvin McDowell and James Shields when news of the debacle at Front Royal reached Washington. As y'all recall, Shields had just arrived from the valley to reinforce McDowell at Fredericksburg, and at his meeting with the two generals, Lincoln had reviewed their plans to move down the line of the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad toward the Confederate capital. With 40,000 men between them, McDowell and Shields would brush aside any enemy resistance and, approaching from the north, link up with McClellan at the very doorstep of Richmond. At that point, nearly 160,000 Federals would be poised to assault the enemy capital, opposed by about 60,000 rebels led by Joseph E. Johnston. But Jackson's offensive in the Shenandoah Valley upset those plans. There was a genuine crisis in the valley, for if Banks were defeated at Winchester and forced to retreat from there, a Confederate advance farther down the valley would threaten Harper's Ferry and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. There was even talk by some that Jackson, making a dash on Washington, couldn't be ruled out. In fact, some chroniclers of the Valley Campaign over the years have delighted in picturing Lincoln as panicked at the possibility that Stonewall might threaten Washington. But in reality, Lincoln's reaction to the news of Jackson's move was aggressive. The president, far from panicking, instead saw in the enemy's actions an opportunity to trap and destroy Stonewall. Lincoln reasoned that the farther down the valley Stonewall advanced, the farther he would be sticking his neck into a noose. Looking at a map, Lincoln saw that if the Federals reacted quickly and aggressively, they could move forces in behind Jackson and cut him off and trap him. And so the president decided to have McDowell hold in place, and rather than moving south to link up with McClellan at the gates of Richmond, McDowell was now to send 20,000 men west to the Shenandoah Valley. Lincoln also wired John C. Fremont, ordering him to advance out of the Allegheny Mountains and into the valley, so that by moving into the Shenandoah from east and west, McDowell's 20,000 men and Fremont's force would be the two jaws of the trap snapping shut behind Stonewall Jackson. But perhaps the most significant message that went out from Washington at this time was the one that Lincoln sent to McClellan on the afternoon of Saturday, May 24th. It read, quote, In consequence of General Banks' critical position, I have been compelled to suspend General McDowell's movements to you. The enemy are making a desperate push upon Harper's Ferry, and we are trying to throw Fremont's force and part of McDowell's in their rear, end quote. And so the great federal movement on the Confederate capital had been stymied by Stonewall Jackson's actions out in the Shenandoah Valley.
Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Meanwhile, back at Winchester, early on the morning of the 25th, Stonewall Jackson was about to fight another Sabbath day battle. At 4 a.m., after just two short hours of rest, his tired men filed silently into position southwest of town as a heavy fog blanketed the landscape. Sunrise was at 4.48 that morning, but the mist made it hard to tell just when the sun actually rose over the horizon. In the meantime, about a mile southeast of Winchester, Ewell read a dispatch from Jackson. It was a single sheet of paper on which was drawn a map of the surrounding area, showing Stonewall's position over on the Valley Turnpike, and beneath the map were the words, Attack at Daylight. Stonewall believed that on Sunday morning, between the men with him and Ewell's nearby force, he had close to 11,000 troops within striking distance of Winchester, although there's actually no way of knowing how many Confederates were really on hand Sunday morning due to the extremely heavy straggling in Jackson's force the night before. For example, in the Stonewall Brigade, the 27th Virginia took a mere 136 men into the battle on Sunday, while the 23rd Virginia was down to 150 officers and men. Across the way, Nathaniel Banks was certain he was heavily outnumbered by Jackson and Ewell. Banks had Hatch's 1,500 horsemen, but they would be virtually worthless in a stand-up fight for Winchester. And so, subtracting the cavalry from the Union total, Banks probably had about 4,400 men ready for battle on Sunday morning. But outnumbered or not, Banks knew he had to make a stand at Winchester, if only to buy time while his trains continued to roll northward toward the Potomac River. 
At midnight, therefore, Banks had called for Hatch and for Alpheus Williams to attend a council of war, and both men agreed with Banks' decision to offer battle to the Confederates, although expectations were low as to the outcome of any such fight. Williams later admitted, quote, That we should all be prisoners of war, I had little doubt, but we could not get away without a show of resistance. End quote. Southwest of Winchester, the four blue-clad regiments of Colonel George H. Gordon's brigade faced Jackson's force. By 7 a.m., Stonewall had amassed 15 regiments on the west side of the turnpike to oppose Gordon's four. Then, less than two miles to the east, the Federals and the three regiments of Colonel Dudley Donnelly's brigade, defending the Front Royal Road, would count nine Confederate regimental colors to their front as Ewell's men marched to the attack. There on the Confederate right at daybreak, Ewell sent in the 21st North Carolina and 21st Georgia. The hills to their front were held by the men of the 10th Maine, who skirmished briefly with the advancing rebels before retiring. Behind the 10th Maine, Donnelly had posted the 46th Pennsylvania to the west of the Front Royal Road and the 5th Connecticut to the east, with the battery of the 4th U.S. Artillery on a hill to the rear of the two regiments. The 21st North Carolina emerged from the dense fog into the waiting guns of Donnelly's men. The rebels fell back, regrouped, and then tried a bayonet charge that was just as severely repulsed. A lull then settled over this part of the battlefield for almost 30 minutes as Yule moved the 1st Maryland and Trimble's brigade to the extreme left of the Union line, threatening not only to outflank it, but also cut off any avenue of retreat. Meanwhile, over on Jackson's sector of the battlefield, Stonewall was pleased to discover that the hills he had been so worried about the night before had not been occupied by the Yankees in any strength. That morning, up came the Stonewall Brigade's commander, Charles Winder, and Jackson pointed to a ridge to their front and simply said, You must occupy that hill. As Winder prepared to move out, Jackson heard firing over to the east and knew that Ewell, over on the front royal road, had started his attack. Winder led the Stonewall Brigade forward and the rebels made it to their objective quickly and with little opposition. But when the Confederates gained the crest of the ridge, they were subjected to a withering fire from the Federals occupying another hill beyond. That elevation anchored the right side of the Federal line there to the west of the Valley Pike. To defend this sector, Gordon had placed the 2nd Massachusetts in the center of his line, put the 29th Pennsylvania and 27th Indiana to their right, and then the 3rd Wisconsin on the left. Faced by this stout Federal defensive line, Winder requested help from Jackson, and Stonewall replied, I will send you up, Taylor. Jackson found the Louisiana at the head of his brigade, already moving up from his position in reserve. Pointing to the troublesome hill that anchored the Federal right, Stonewall simply told Richard Taylor, You must carry it. As Taylor moved his regiments forward, meaning to skirt the hill and flank it, Federal artillery began to pound the rebels, and the men instinctively flinched from the shells, and their orderly ranks began to jumble. Taylor, knowing the eyes of the pinned-down Virginians would be on his brigade of Louisianans as it made its assault, meant to have his men move forward in parade-ground fashion, and so he roared, "'What the hell are you dodging for? If there is any more of it, you will be halted under this fire for an hour.'" 
The effect was instantaneous, according to one observer. Looking, quote, as if they had swallowed ramrods, the men straightened up and closed ranks, end quote. But the cursing drew Taylor a reproach from Stonewall. Taylor later recalled, quote, I shall never forget the look of surprise on Jackson's face. He placed his hand on my shoulder, said in a gentle voice, I am afraid you are a wicked fellow, then turned and rode off. At 7.30, Taylor's brigade started forward against the right flank of the Federal line west of the turnpike. It was a sight that no one who saw it would ever forget. Sergeant John Worsham of the 21st Virginia said, quote, General Taylor rode in front of his brigade, drawn sword in hand, occasionally turning his horse, at other times merely turning in his saddle to see that his line was up. They marched up the hill in perfect order, not firing a shot. About halfway to the Yankees, he gave in a loud and commanding voice that I am sure the Yankees heard the order to charge. Taylor's charging Louisianans overwhelmed the 29th Pennsylvania and 27th Indiana. The collapse of those regiments forced the 2nd Massachusetts to withdraw, and then the 3rd Wisconsin also had to pull back. With the entire right side of his defensive line south of Winchester having collapsed, Alpheus Williams sent a message to Donnelly directing him to withdraw his brigade also, and by 9.30 it was all over. Most of the retreating Federals fell back right through Winchester and attempted to regain some form of order as they headed north on the Martinsburg Road. During the Federal retreat through the streets of Winchester, some of the town's civilians took the opportunity to vent their frustration at their former occupiers. After the battle, numerous reports surfaced that accused townspeople, both men and women, of firing on the retreating Union soldiers. Amid the chaos, other citizens rushed into Winchester's streets, heedless of the danger, to greet Jackson's advancing troops as liberators. The next day, Stonewall wrote to his wife, saying, quote, I do not remember having ever seen such rejoicing as was manifested by the people of Winchester. The people seemed nearly frantic with joy. Indeed, it would be almost impossible to describe their manifestations of rejoicing and gratitude. End quote. While the Confederate infantry rounded up prisoners in Winchester and pushed after the retreating Yankee columns, Jackson looked for his cavalry to rush out and complete his victory by annihilating Banks, but due to command confusion on the part of Ewell's troopers and lack of discipline and organization amongst Turner Ashby's horsemen, the Confederate cavalry failed Stonewall at Winchester, and the retreating Federals escaped northward. During the 14 hours following the Confederate victory at Winchester, Banks' men retreated 20 miles before reaching Martinsburg on the Potomac River, and then pushing on another dozen miles to the crossing at Williamsport. They moved across the river and into Maryland and to safety beginning at 2 a.m. on Tuesday morning. The losses at Winchester are difficult to calculate. Union reports lumped together casualties incurred at Front Royal on the retreat on May 24th and at the Battle of and Retreat from Winchester. Total federal casualties for the three days were 71 killed, 243 wounded, and 1,714 missing. On the Confederate side, for the three days of fighting, Jackson reported casualties of 68 killed and 329 wounded, with just three men reported missing. Stonewall again displayed 
tactical shortcomings at Winchester, just as he had done at Front Royal. Although he had seven infantry brigades at his disposal throughout this sustained offensive, never did he, or Ewell, deploy even two of them in coordination to overwhelm the lone regiment of Union infantry at Front Royal and two brigades of enemy infantry at Winchester. Stonewall also displayed other shortcomings besides piecemeal deployment for battle, especially a lack of appreciation of how fatigue hampered the efficiency of his command. But those flaws in his generalship didn't change the fact that he had achieved an astounding success in capturing Winchester and driving banks across the Potomac. As we said before, if Stonewall hadn't evidenced any tactical genius so far during the Valley Campaign, he had proven himself a master of maneuver, of getting his troops into position to even fight a battle and have an opportunity to defeat the enemy. And besides success on the battlefield, there was also his greatest accomplishment, that of compelling Lincoln to divert more forces to the valley, and as a result, giving Joe Johnston's army a fighting chance against McClellan in the fight for Richmond. Next time we'll see if Stonewall, following his victory at Winchester, can now escape from the trap that Abraham Lincoln is trying to lay for him there in the valley. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1862, edited by Gary Gallagher. This book is actually a collection of essays by different historians, and it's about Jackson's Valley Campaign, of course, um, but there are eight essays plus a bibliographic essay. And this is actually part of a series of these Civil War books that uh, was published by the University of North Carolina Press and edited by Gary Gallagher. And they cover quite a few of the major campaigns in the war's Eastern theater. And the essays are pretty much top-notch across the board. And they're very useful for those who want to go a bit deeper into the goings-on in each campaign that's covered. Uh, in this instance, with the Valley Campaign, some of the essays include the metamorphosis of Stonewall Jackson's public image. Um, then there's, in the very midst of the war track, the Valley Civilians and the Shenandoah Campaign. Uh, there's also an essay titled, Maryland's Ableist Confederate, General Charles S. Winder of the Stonewall Brigade. And, well, that gives you an idea of what kind of topics are covered. So that's the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1862, edited by Gary Gallagher. You can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Each episode's book recommendation is included with that show's post, and then when you pull up the website at the top of the page with the header menu, you can click where it says Book Recommendations, and there's a complete list of each and every recommendation going back to episode number one. Speaking of episode number one, uh, we didn't plan anything special for this 150th episode, but we did think that you guys would be interested to know, uh, because we were interested, but that not counting this episode and not counting the 30 episodes we've done for the members of the Strawfoot Brigade, but with just the regular episodes, it adds up to 80 hours and 50 minutes of Civil War podcast goodness. 
um, which we never added that up before, but it kind of blows our minds now that we have added it up and see it in front of us. 80 hours and 50 minutes. I mean, holy cow. We've said before about how we started the podcast back in November of 2012 and just decided to do the first couple of episodes to see if anyone would be interested in listening. We released the first episode on November 18th, and on December 10th, we hit 1,000 downloads. About two years later, on January 21st, 2015, we reached 1 million downloads, and now we have over 100,000 downloads every month and are well over 2 million total downloads. And we're still just in the first half of 1862. Holy cow, again. Thanks for listening to this 150th episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next week when we continue with the story of Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.